Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and today we're going to be talking not necessarily about a Maine issue, but an issue that affects Maine and the rest of the country in a very, very serious way, uh, cyber and the problem of cyber intrusion, cyber attacks, however you want to characterize them. Uh, it's great because I have with me one of the real experts on this subject, David Sanger, a senior reporter at the New York Times who has written extensively uh, on this subject, uh, probably knows as much about it as anyone inside or outside government as far as I can tell. Uh, David, welcome. Nice to have you with me. Great to be with you, Senator King. Uh, Give us the, the the big picture. Why should uh, ordinary citizens worry about this cyber stuff? Well, you know, I think ordinary citizens have been worried about it for a long time because of their own personal uh, vulnerabilities. You know, how many times have you gotten that letter from your credit card company saying that somebody took off with your credit card number? How many times have you been concerned that uh, your emails or something are vulnerable? How many times have you heard the concern that the Russians would turn off, be able to turn off the power in, uh, uh, in the power grid? But the problem has two additional turns that I think don't get as much public discussion. Um, the first is that cyber has become the primary way, the primary way that states conduct short-of-war operations against each other. And we couldn't have said that 10 years ago. But from the moment that the Russians turned off the lights in Ukraine to the kind of, of intellectual property theft attacks we've seen from China. It's to, amazing that the new generation of Chinese fighter planes looks a lot like the F-35. Isn't it astounding? <laughs> and they're also about a third cheaper, which raises a really interesting way that we could cut the defense budget. But I have a funny feeling that your colleagues on the Armed Services Committee might not go for – buying Chinese fighter jets. I don't know why I think that. You know? <laughs> I think you may be onto something. But yeah, you, so this is becoming a – not becoming. It is a very serious national security issue. It is the primary way states now compete with each it other. It was the number one threat, by the way, in the office of the, the uh, director of national intelligence does a worldwide threat assessment every year. In 2007, it wasn't even on the list. That's right. This year, number one, cyber. Past six years, it's been number one. And what's interesting is while it came out as number one uh, this year in late January uh, when that was uh, brought out, when the president gave his State of the Union address and turned to national security issues a week later, you'll remember he spent a fair bit of time on border issues and the wall and so forth, which are all serious and important national security issues. But there was no mention of this. So part of the difficulty is – that we were out of sync between what the intelligence professionals and others believe is the number one threat and what we discuss as the number one threats mm -hmm. in the political world. And it's not just President Trump. I mean, I, I think, you know, with the exception of you and I would say probably a dozen of your colleagues uh, that I could, I could count off, it's not widely discussed or dealt with inside the U.S. Congress. But you, you make the point that it's the, it's the weapon of choice for warfare short of shooting. That's right. And one of the things I've observed in all the hearings that I've been in on this, it's cheap. Putin can hire – this is my back-of-the-envelope calculation – can hire 4,000 hackers for the cost of one jet fighter. That, that's right. So it's cheap. It's deniable, right? Yeah. Um, just the other day, uh, the NSA and 
the British equivalent of the NSA, turned out a report making the point that the Russians had figured out how to get inside an Iranian hacking team so that it looked like their hacks were actually coming from Iran. So that's an example of deniability. It is adjustable. You know, you drop a nuclear weapon, while you can adjust the yield a little bit, it's basically on an on and off switch. But a cyber weapon is more like the thermostat on your wall, right? You can dial it up and dial it down. You can do a mild attack that just sends a message. You can do a big attack that turns off the lights. And I think the last and important difference for um, cyber is that it is extraordinarily useful in combination with other kinds of more traditional attacks. We think of cyber war almost separately. In a book I published last year called The Perfect Weapon about this, um, I noted that while everybody tells you that we've got it under control, when it comes to the intelligence that predicts coming in uh, cyber strikes of a significant nature, we have a perfect record, which is to say we have never successfully predicted one. So the attack on Sony, the attack on in 2014, the attack on OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, in which the Chinese got... They only uh, got 32 million records. 22 million. Yeah, 22, sorry. But they got, including 5 million sets of fingerprints and... If it was your security clearance was stolen, you may remember you got a nice letter saying, don't worry, we've given you credit protection for a year or two, <laughs> right, right. as if what Xi Jinping was looking for was your visa card. <laughs> you know, I don't right. think he needs it. No. <laughs> right. Um, we failed to predict any element of the Russian interference at the time uh, that it happened. Now, we are – there are evidence that we're getting better at this, but um, it's not that – our radar was off. It's not like Pearl Harbor. It's we hadn't even built the radar. Well, and I, I think it's interesting because you use the term and, and uh, I've heard it used around here. I think the other piece of sort of old thinking that we have to uh, we have to reexamine is that there's some bright line between cyber and shooting. That uh, that the the uh, I contend that a cyber attack is just that. It's an attack. And it doesn't take – it doesn't necessarily require what we call kinetic attack or a bomb or a missile to disable a community, whether it's, it's through the grid. There's an old Woody Guthrie song, Pretty Boy Floyd. Pretty Boy Floyd, the outlaw Oklahoma, knew him well. But one of the verses is, uh, is through this world I wander, I've seen lots of crooked men. Some will rob you with a six-gun, others with a fountain pen. Yep. It's still robbery. And if they disable us or attack our democratic system, to me, that's an attack. It is. But your response to it is very much driven by our old concepts of what an attack looked like. And let me give you an example. It comes from the Sony attack. So Sony, for those of you don't among your listeners who don't remember it, uh, was attacked by the North Koreans because they were opposed to a truly terrible movie that was yes, uh, very few coming, people. Co coming, coming out. Um, Literally scores of people saw that. Yeah, I, I think that's actually probably more did after the North Koreans tried to stop it from, from coming out. Uh, it was called The Interview and it was basically a crazy plot and it was a Seth Rogen movie in which a couple of journalists 
are hired by the CIA to go and assassinate Kim Jong-un, right? That was the plot of the movie. I've hung out in newsrooms for 37 years now, and I would say if you're going to hire some hitmen, I can't think of a worse group to pick from that guaranteed to screw it up would be be the journalist. But, 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 but North anyway, Korea took it totally seriously. They took it completely seriously, and they spent three months inside Sony systems, and they brought down 70% of their computing system. Now, supposing they didn't have access to CyberCenter. Supposing they had landed a bunch of commandos at Long Beach and taken an Uber up to the Sony Studios exactly. and stuck dynamite under the computer center, they might have killed off maybe 50% of the, of the thing. But if you saw the smoke rising on CNN over the Hollywood sign... Then there would have been a response. There would have been a, a highly kinetic response. I think something would have had to blow up in Pyongyang. Well, that's my point. I mean, I think we need to... We need to rethink, and not that we need to blow somebody up if something like no. this happens, but there needs to be some kind of, of response, and we need to recognize that this is not – cyber isn't over to the one side, and and uh, sending in the tanks is over on the other side. They're totally separate. But, you know, in both that and the election hack, you saw inside the Obama administration this fascinating debate about was this an act of war? Was it an act of sabotage? Was it an act of espionage? Well, it wasn't espionage. It blew up the computing system and it affected right. Espionage is gathering information. information. Right. And you wouldn't call the election hack espionage either because they were spreading out information to influence the election. But it also wasn't an outright act of war. I mean, we're talking about stopping a bad movie here. We're not talking about blowing up a city. And we, are, we haven't figured out the gray zone here. And we haven't figured out how to react. And it, when we come back from a break, we're going to talk about uh, solutions. But I want to spend a little bit more time on on how serious this can be. You mentioned at the beginning it can be serious to an individual if you lose your credit card data, your t- identity is stolen. I mean, we know how serious that problem is because we see ads for identity theft protection on on television. Um, but from a national security, it's not only coming in and and attacking our elections or uh, other things. There, there are all kinds of other potential uh, actions. Talk about the electric grid, for example, or, or the gas pipeline system. Uh, that would be uh, – you would end up with, uh, with deaths as a result. Absolutely. Um, and the other part that I think, you know, your listeners have to understand is this is something we're vulnerable to. But it's also built into our war plans. And one of my concerns is that as a country, we haven't debated how we want to go use this weapon. So let's take the example you used of turning off the power grid. So when the United States was fearful prior to the 2015 nuclear agreement that we might get into a conflict with Iran, um, the Obama administration ordered up a new war plan for Iran. And a classified part of it was something called Nitro Zeus that – basically called for, among other things, shutting down the power grid inside Tehran in hopes that if you did that, you might never have to move to an actual physical war. On the one hand, I can see why we want to go do that. On the other hand, every time we find Russian malware sitting in our grid, we say, oh, my God, the Russians are going to shut off our electricity. not persuaded they would do because the reaction would be so great. But we haven't reconciled in our own minds the contradiction here. If we want to say that power grid should be off limits, that that should be one of the standards we build, 
then we have to have an open debate about whether we're willing to take that off the table as a weapon we would use. And I don't know about you, but I haven't found anybody in the U.S. intelligence community willing to have that debate in public. Well, certainly not in public. And I think that's one of the problems with this whole discussion is things are overclassified. Uh, we 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 really need the public to be engaged and to understand what these discussions and you know from working on this stuff for years and years that there's a tendency to hold things as classified that really shouldn't be that, that's absolutely right and look i understand i mean i this. realize that's red meat for a reporter a reporter say. right but uh for this is one of the first weapons that has ever been developed by the intelligence community rather than by the defense community had, you know, big surprise. The intelligence community is naturally secretive. And because it's relatively cheap, you don't need a, a multi-billion dollar appropriation. That's right. Like you do for a new submarine. or That's right. But what's missing here is the debate that we had in the nuclear age about how to use the weapon. So in the nuclear age, you know, we went from General MacArthur wanting to use nuclear weapons against the North Koreans and the Chinese we now know that the American commander in South Vietnam wanted a bomb on hand in case we lost at Kaesong and he needed it against the North. We know that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were advisors to President Kennedy, military advisors, who wanted him to just use our nuclear weapons on the Soviet Union and end this whole Cold War thing. Curtis LeMay. That's right. Where we moved by the late 80s after a big national debate was saying, we're never going to use nuclear weapons except as a last resort for national survival. No. But it's essentially – and that's basically been the approach for Democratic and Republican administrations for the past 30 years. We have not had the equivalent discussion in cyber. And the only way you're going to have that, frankly, is if committees like the ones you sit on, journalists who are doing what what I do, and others force the issue out because the government of the United States will not do this by itself. Well, and and one of the problems with this whole issue is I, the more you get into it, the more complicated it gets. That's a lot of things. But the majority of the of the vulnerability is in the private sector. It's not the government. I mean, there are there are government targets, clearly Department of Defense or or the White House or whatever. But uh, if there's a, a serious strike, it's going to be telecommunications, financials. Right. services, uh, electricity, and that's one of the complications, and I'm working on this, as you know, with the National Commission on Cyber, is what's the relationship between the private sector and the public sector? And, of course, the, the other thing and I, I wanted to touch on uh, before we take a quick break is um, we're probably the most vulnerable people in the world because we're the most wired people in the world. One of the oddities of cyber war, and we haven't had a full-scale cyber war, fortunately, but even low-level cyber conflict, is the advantage goes to the least wired society. North Korea. Right. North Korea is a perfect example. Take down their internet. Uh, okay. Great. Okay. Yeah, great. All hundred people who are on the North Korean internet, <laughs> you're gone. Well, right. <laughs> okay. Take down their power grid. Well, if you can't turn the lights on, you don't really have notice when they get turned Have you ever seen a picture of off. North Korea at yeah, night? Absolutely. There are no lights. I have been in North Korea at night, and uh, there's no lights and there's no internet, and it really makes it hard to file your story back home. Uh, so, um, so this is one of the oddities that does not exist in the most traditional ways. And so you have a lot of people who say, well, let's use the same kind of deterrence that kept us safe in the Cold War during the nuclear age. And my answer to that is 
every question that came up in the nuclear age was is the same question that comes up in the cyber age, and every answer is different. Yeah. And you know, before I wrote my book, I went to see Henry Kissinger because he had written a book in 1957 called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. It was the first book that really laid out how nuclear weapons were changing international politics. And it was a real model to me, not that any of us could follow in the footsteps of Kissinger, but it was an inspiration. I hadn't read it since I was an undergraduate in college. And I went to see him and I talked to him about cyber and he looked at me and I can't really do his voice, but it was basically David this is so much more complicated than nuclear ever was. It, it, it really is. I can, I can attest to that. Uh, David, we're going to take a quick break. I've got to go vote. I'll be back in about uh, – well, on for terms of our podcast, it will be just a few seconds. I'll be back in a few minutes and uh, we'll continue this discussion. Great. Thank you. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. With me today is David Sanger of the New York Times, uh, one of the premier foreign policy reporters in the country and particularly on the area of cyber. He's written extensively both in the paper and uh, in books on this subject. We've talked about how serious the problem is. Uh, and I thought you made a really interesting point that it's almost like the weaker the op the opponent, the more dangerous they are, and they're not subject to the same kind of responses that the the, the nuclear uh, deterrent doesn't work that way. So, what do we do? What wh where do we? How do we defend ourselves from this? And it's a problem that's going to get worse as we go to five G, for example. It is getting worse, and I think one of the things people don't recognize about. 5G networks is much as we'd like to think it's all about our cell phones, this isn't actually about us. Mm -hmm. This is about the Internet of Things talking to the Internet of Things. It's yeah, about when the Internet of Things is your is not only your phone, but it's your it's your microwave, your refrigerator, your, your car. Your autonomous car that's gotta go communicate over the cloud to figure out the best route to get you someplace and you know, there's an accident one block and, to the left. And to a satellite that tells you where you are on the road. That's right. That satellite will not only tell you where you are, but with good artificial intelligence will help figure out, as Google Maps does now, your best route. But it may be a personalized route, which is to say there's an accident over but if here. What, what if somebody cracks that system and every car in America has a head-on collision? That's a big problem. Or somebody drives off a cliff and you're wondering, was it an accident or was it not, Right. Um, I can imagine the novel on the rocky sound, main coast. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like a pretty good story. Stephen King might be able to do he, something I, with that. He, I, he's written these kinds of things <laughs> before. Um, so, so this is a part of it. And I think that we went through a period of time in cyber, as we did in the nuclear age, thinking that all of our solutions were technological, you know, that we're going to build Star Wars, that we're going to build great missile defense. And, um, well... You sit on committees that look over missile defense, and you know the answer, which is 50% likelihood you'll intercept the missile if there are just a few thrown at you. And if there are right. a lot thrown at you, forget the whole thing. It's over. Right. Okay. So and missiles in, are getting faster and harder to detect, detect. and hypersonics. and That's right. Yeah. So, the, so the missile defense are working there. Yeah. So what did we do in, in nuclear? We had both physical protections and we had treaties. Now, treaties won't work terribly well in the cyber age because – in nuclear, you know, you had just a couple of countries that had the weapons, and all the weapons were in the hands of governments. And you could go out and count them. 
You could go out and count them, and you knew who controlled them by name. In cyber, you've got states, you've got terrorists, you've got criminal groups, and you have teenagers. And I don't know what it was like in your household, but in my household, the teenagers did not sign treaties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Or they certainly didn't, didn't feel binding. Yeah, that's right. So um, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to have something more akin to a digital Geneva Convention or a code of conduct where there is a growing understanding of what you don't attack. And you will remember the real Geneva Conventions focused on protecting civilians, right? right? And they're not perfect and they're not super enforceable. Bashar Assad wakes up every morning thinking about how to violate the Geneva Conventions and he usually does a pretty good job of it. But we're all in the But whole, by and large for 100 years. It's worked. It's worked. But in the, Chemical it, weapons – Minimal use. That ke chemical weapons, biological but, but, weapons. But your others. point – but it seems to me that it's very difficult to get to that point if you're talking about actors who aren't bound by treaties or conventions right. or anything else. So you need to do two things. One is the big powers are going to have to come to some agreements among themselves. And that's why I said earlier that unless you have a debate about what your capabilities are – you can't have a debate about what you're willing to give up because guess what? If we have some kind of norms of behavior here, someone's going to have to say, yes, we, the United States, bound in future years as well. Will not do will X, not Y, or do Z. Will not do X, Y, or Z. And in return, we won't – X, Y, and Z, we do not expect to be done to us. And this sounds naive, but it's worked mm -hmm. you know, in large part in, in other systems. The second thing we've got to do is once you've got those norms together – then every country has to agree that they are going to enforce those internally because it's a criminal act right. for the terrorists or the criminal groups or the teenagers. Well, if you had such an agreement, we know the names of a lot of the people in Russia that conducted the election attack because they were named in Robert Mueller's indictment. They could be arrested and extradited and tried, but that we don't have the the relationship where Russia would – recognize that. That's right. And that's been true in other areas, non-cyber areas uh, So what about well. deterrence? That's worked for 70 years in the nuclear side. What about you, you, if you mess around with our electric grid, something bad's going to happen to you? Right. So um, we reported just a few months ago that the U.S. Cyber Command has now planted some made-to-be-seen malware inside the Russian electric grid. So that they – the idea is for the Russians to see it, maybe not see all of it, but say, we're going to show you just enough to show you we know how to get inside. You may be missing some. And when we ran this story, there was silence from the U.S. government. They did not push back on it. Well, I'm sorry. The president declared it was treasonous and then he declared it was wrong. But that was in a tweet. So we'll set it aside. But basically the rest of the government did not dispute this. They weren't unhappy to see this story out there. And what we are sort of headed toward, I think, is even more kinds of engagement like this. And one of the things I'm most interested to see about what comes out of the Cyber Solarium group that you uh, uh, help sponsor here is what it concludes about pushing future what we call persistent engagement. In other words, constantly being in foreign networks monitoring them, and being able to send signals like this. The problem with it is if you're constantly going to be in a foreigner's network, you have to be a little bit accepting of the fact that the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Iranians 
are going to feel free to constantly be in your network. Now, I don't think that's a big deal because they're there anyway. But what about what about a more conventional deterrence? And, and, and I don't mean necessarily cyber for cyber or a missile for cyber, but take the Sony hack when Sony really – Mangle or, or the North Koreans mangled the the Sony uh, system, and and President Obama said we will respond at a time and place of our choosing. But there really wasn't much of a response. Don't we have to declare a policy that our adversaries will think twice and say, if we do this, something America is going to strike back? Right now, I don't feel, and I've asked this question probably. 15 or 20 times in the last five years of our military and intelligence leaders, there's nothing to change the calculation of an adversary about whether or not to come come at us with a cyber attack. You have to both declare it and show that you have the political will to use it, right? And those are two different things. Right. Anybody can put declaratory policy out there. If you go into the Trump administration's nuclear posture review, a document that comes out usually once an administration that declares what they're nuclear policy is, early on in, in this, and it was written when Jim Mattis was still the uh, defense secretary, you'll remember there was a section in it in which he said, we reserve the right to use nuclear weapons in response to a non-nuclear major attack on our infrastructure. Well, that could really only be a cyber attack, mm-hmm. right, that would be broad enough. Now, the question that raised is, would does we? anyone really believe we would be the first to use a nuclear weapon in response to a cyber attack? I'm not sure I'm persuaded that we would. And so small things that the um, Cyber Command has done in the past year I think are gradually edging us out here. So in the 2018 midterm elections, they flipped off the computers at the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg in Russia, which is the group that had put all the social media ads out as your committee has described in some public reports. Um, That was – a good forward-leading move. Do I think it was enough to stop the Russians from coming back in 2020? No. But the question is, can it be, you know, the natural place you would run would be economic sanctions, mm-hmm. right? Which have probably been the most overused tool in American foreign policy in the past decade. And this is not Not clear a, how effective they've ever been. That's right. And it's because all your allies have to join in, right? So I noticed when the Sony attack happened, we did some modest sanctions on the North Koreans. I doubt they ever noticed it among all the other sanctions. Who didn't do sanctions against the North Koreans? The Japanese government. And the last time I checked, and I lived in Japan for six years at the Times, Sony was a Japanese company. Right. But they didn't want to be associated with the attack on the studio because they were concerned about attacks inside Japan. Well, that raises the question of escalation. And I think that's one of the arguments is if they do a, a, an attack, some kind of cyber attack, and we respond, they respond. They, that was one of the things Obama was concerned about after uh, the Sony attack and, and the, the election attack. Where does it stop? And uh, that's, the, that's a, a subtlety. And that's paralyzed us in a lot of places. I mean, I think, you know, I came out of the fairly extensive reporting on the Russia hack in the election, concluding that the U.S. government under-responded. Now, During the end of the Obama administration, as I was covering it in real time, members of the administration defended for me – defended to me their decisions. And it was exactly what you said. If we do X to the Russians, they may escalate on election day 
and do something even worse, and we can't take And President risk. Obama was worried that he would appear to be partisan trying to help Hillary Clinton. That's right. That's right. Um, if you ask them now, most, not all, will tell you in retrospect we paralyzed ourselves and we under-responded. Well, stay with us because the Intelligence Committee, of which I'm a member, is going to be issuing a report on that very subject in the next several months. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and I suspect that if you come to some interesting conclusions, we'll write about it. Um, but uh, I think it's pretty universally held. I don't know what, what you came out of with that, that that was a case study in under-response. That, 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 that's been my conclusion as well. Um, lots of good reasons for it, but the result was the Russians didn't feel in any risk of continuing and going on into 2018, and as far as we know, 2020. And that's what worries me about 2020. Um, I mean, I have some worry about the election machines, but not many because fortunately our election system in the United States is, is a, so old. Is a hairball. So, yes, <laughs> that, you know, you'd, it, it, it's so different county to county that right. it would be really hard to hack. But here's what does worry me. But it wouldn't take – all they'd have to do is hack half a dozen counties in Florida and Michigan and Ohio to, That's right, to, to cast create. doubt. And to enable one of the candidates, perhaps the incumbent, to say this was rigged, you know, this was an unfair vote. Um, what does worry me is the outward-facing, internet-connected part of the system, and that's the registration system, which we Absolutely. know the Russians went after. And I don't know what conclusion you guys came to in your report – but I know DHS believes, uh, Department of Homeland Security, that probably all 50 states were attacked in some way. And my contention on that is although there's no evidence they changed votes or indeed changed voter registration, they weren't doing it for fun. They, no. were, they were practicing. They were probing. They were learning. And imagine if in Dade County, Florida, everybody went to vote and suddenly your name was wrong on the voter list or it wasn't there. Or it, said, have, it said Mr. King – we think you moved to Arizona three months ago. Right, and, or you, know, you already voted. Or, or, yeah, something like that. I'll give you another scenario that's scarier than that. This summer, in Texas, all across Texas, we saw ransomware attacks, right? Little towns. Communities. We've seen them in Maine. We've we, had several in Maine. Right. And, you know, the towns don't have the money for uh, IT professionals and, you know, all that. So they're pretty vulnerable. So supposing there are ransomware attacks that lock up some of the registration systems and you go to, go to vote and they say, well, Senator King, we'd love to have you come in and vote at your traditional box here today, but we can't get at our registration logs, which is one of the reasons you're seeing a big push now to make sure this stuff is printed out and backed up in right. some non-digital ways. But that could also throw a fair bit of chaos. And a third one, and, and, turn and one off of, the power. And, and one of the problems is that they don't have to change votes. They don't have to win. They don't have – all they've got to do is cast doubt. That's right. And it undermines – I mean our whole system, I don't think we realize the extent to which our system is based upon trust and confidence. And it can be fragile. And uh, I think that's the, one of the dangers that we're well, facing. Well, that, that was the major concern about 2016. And – it, there's one thing you can say about the Russians in 2020. The one thing they won't do is replay the 2016 playbook. That's right. Because we're ready for that. Mark Zuckerberg was out here in public in Washington last week telling everybody, 
they've now got 35,000 people working on security and reviewing material and all that. They are more attuned to it. But there's no way the Russians are going to do the same thing again. Well, one of the uh, one of the situations that we're in, and we t- talked before about how we were more vulnerable because we're more wired. We're also more vulnerable because of the nature of our society. These these adversaries are using I, I call it geopolitical jujitsu. They're using our strength against us: the First Amendment, free speech, open society, and you know how do you say that this is a? I mean, one one way to do it is the the origin. You say we're not going to let the Russians inform our voters, but do we want Mark Zuckerberg or anybody else deciding what's a true ad and what's not a true ad, what's a what's a, you know an unfair attack? That that gets very close to the line on the First Amendment. It, it does, and even figuring out location is going to get harder. I mean, it was hard enough in 2016 to figure out that that ad about Texas secession wasn't being written by Texans, but it was being written in St. Petersburg, Russia. And but it took months, as I recall, to identify North Korea on the Sony attack definitively. It certainly did. Um, in 2020, what if a foreign uh, actor puts the material on a server in the U.S. and just does a better job of making it appear like it was native? Right. And – you know, our intelligence agencies are somewhat limited for very good legal reasons. Well, the CIA reasons. and the National Security Agency are prohibited from dealing with I- inside U.S. issues. Right. And the Russians have noticed. Well, I hate to, <laughs> I hate to end on a note like that. I think the fact that uh, you and I are sitting here talking about it, we've got a the National Cyber Solarium working on this issue, um, at least it's risen to the level where we're having this national discussion. It's going to have to continue. This is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. And the good news is this is a system that human beings invented, which means that this is a system human beings can change. But it's going to require more than just technological change. It's going to require some common understanding in the U.S. about what is acceptable behavior, what we're going to stop happening to us, and then the much harder debate, which is what are we willing to take off the table that we won't do to other countries so that we can legitimately make a case that it can't be done to us. David Sanger, great insights. I appreciate your work and uh, your sharing with me today, with us today, and also the work that you do in uh, sharing these insights with the country. Thank you for your work. I look forward to future discussions. Thank you.